series this morning entitled Stand. We have been talking about the armor of God, as Paul writes about in the book of Ephesians. Of course, we've talked about the fact that Ephesians was written by Paul to a community of churches, to a group of churches in that region, and his purpose in writing this letter to the church was to tell the church how to be the church, right? Uh, if, if you, maybe if you've had a child, if you, you had a baby, you might have read the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, right? Anyone, anyone read the, all right? And it, and it just says, hey, here's what you can expect. Here's what's going to kind of happen. And then there's another book, What to Expect the First Year. Now, here's what I know, that book, some of it was like right on, and some of it you're like, that wasn't in the book. Um, Paul's writing to the church because they're just getting started. This is the very early days of the church. And they're already experiencing some of the tensions that come from being in proximity to other human beings. Have you found this to be true? That when you live your life in proximity to other people, stuff happens. Not always good stuff. Right? You guys are all nervous to like say, yeah, because there's people sitting around you. Come on, it's, it's the reality of life that when we live our lives with other people, we rub each other the wrong way, things happen, right? Things get turned upside down, things don't always go well, and right out of the gate, the church in Ephesus is dealing with some, some big issues, some big stuff. And so Paul writes this letter to them going, hey, let me help you out. Let me tell you what the church is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function. And it's wrapped up in this one word, unity. Unity. It is the central theme of the book of Ephesians. The letter to the, the church in Ephesus was this. You have to be in unity with the Spirit of God, and you need to stand in unity with each, with each other. And so, after explaining this in many different ways and addressing all manner of uh, parts of our lives, he gets to Ephesians 6, and he concludes the letter with the armor of God. And so let's read together. Um, we can, in fact, let's read these words together. You can read on the screen so we're all reading the same words. Let's le- read loudly and strongly together out loud. Ready? Go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The series title for this sermon series has been Stand. See, because each piece of armor, everything that Paul lists here, uh, isn't, isn't functional just to its own purpose. It doesn't just exist to, to serve itself. Coming together, they, they, they serve the soldier, the believer in this. It gives them the ability to stand. And Paul uses this word stand over and over. We just read it. Take your stand. 
Take your stand against the things that the enemy would want to bring against you. The places of destruction that he wants to uh, cause in our lives. John 10.10 says that the enemy only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come that we would have life and life abundantly or life to the fullest. And so we have to take this stand together. And so the, the title is Stand because this is what the armor allows us to do. We've talked about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet being fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, which we talked about last week. If, if you've missed any of these messages, you can catch them online at thriveglendor.org or on the podcast. Just look up Thrive Glendor on the podcast and you can, you can listen to those. But today we're going to end this series with the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. And it's in, in essence, what Paul does is he saves the best for last. He saves the best for last. And all of these are good. All of these pieces of armor are critical but man, I love the sword. I love talking about the Word of God. It's interesting to note that the sword in this list of armament is the only piece that is offensive in nature. All of the other pieces of, of armor are, are used for defense. They assume a defensive posture. But it's the sword, when put in the hand of a soldier, that allows the army to drive forward and take ground for the kingdom. When I was a kid, I got one of these. Anyone ever get one of those when I was a kid? Man, I love my Swiss Army knife. I, I was like, this, you, know, you know when you get to that age where you can be trusted, right, to have, to have a Swiss Army knife when your kids are little and you're like, no, I am not putting anything sharp in your hands right now, right? Hey, I'm going to borrow that from you. Talk about me right here. Thank you. Right? This is a little Leatherman. This is more sophisticated. Right? And it's got, right? Isn't it cool? They've got all, you look at that. They're, you got all kind. Now, can we be honest? There are things on the Swiss Army knife that, that I'm not sure anyone knows what they're actually used for. Right? I, I figured out that the one like that's sticking down that way with the, right, the whole, it, that's not designed just for cleaning your nails. <laughs> It's actually, it's like one of those leather, the awl that you use, you know, like to, and that's why it only popped up vertically like that, so you could like poke holes in leather or other kinds of, like, you know, your mom's dining room table. Um, man, I loved, I'm going to hang on to this for a second, thank you. I loved, I loved, like a second, like, couple of years, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I loved my, my Swiss Army knife because, man... What's the first thing you do when you get one, right? You go outside and you find a stick, right? And you start whittling, right? And you were like, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a horse. Okay, I'm going to make a pointy stick. Because <laughs> you realize you got some, there's some skills that are needed, right? And now I've got a knife that can, I, now, now I can make a, a spear and I can, man, it was just so cool. I love my Swiss Army knife. When we talk about, though, the sword, Paul's not talking about this. He's not talking about this. He's talking about one of these. That's called the gladius. The gladius was the Roman sword. It would have been the sword that Paul was referencing. It was the thing that he would have been talking about in writing to the Ephesus church, to the Ephesian church, to say, listen, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, 
It's like one of these that the Romans would carry. I want to give you a little detail, a little background on what made this sword so special. You see, for most of us, when we think sword, we think of like the knight, right? The knights of the round table, King Arthur, right? And he has this sword that he just kind of, you know, pulls out and it's like he's this huge four-foot blade that, you know, it's just gleaming in the sun with a huge hilt and two hands on it and, you know, kind of swinging that thing around. That, that's kind of where our minds, at least that's where mind, my mind goes. But that's not the sword that Paul is trying to paint a picture of. The sword that the Roman soldier used was revolutionary. It was very different. In fact, it was a sword that really determined and, and influenced how other swords would look for centuries to come. See, this sword from tip to the end of the hilt was only about 26 to 28 inches long. So not very big, not very big at all. In fact, the blade itself was only between 20 and 20 inches long, about two and a half inches wide at the widest point. It was sharp on both sides. It was a two-edged sword. It, had, uh, it wasn't just a blade on one side. You see sometimes like a samurai sword will have just a, a blade on one side or, or the, the, the sharpened edge on one side. This was a sword that was sharpened on both sides. And you can see down at the end there it has a very sharp tip with that angle on it, that kind of that triangle shape down the end of the blade. This sword would have weighed between one and a half and two pounds, which is not heavy at all. It would have been very easy for a Roman soldier to grab that sword and swing it all day long without growing weary, right, getting fatigued. They could fight and fight and fight. And it was one of the things that set the Roman army apart. It was one of the things that allowed the Roman army to dominate during that time. Is that rather than going for the bigger is better approach, right? You know, you know how that works? If it's, if it's bigger, it must be better. Ask anyone from Texas. I loved when we lived in Alaska. People in Alaska love to remind people from Texas that Alaska is about two and a half times size the size of the state of Texas. I'm saying this for all my Texas friends in the room. Um, bigger isn't always better. Sometimes you need a blade that's, that's not going to wear you out. It's designed for efficiency. In fact, the, uh, the, the, the agile nature of this blade actually led to the Roman army ha having the nickname in that world as the short swords. That's what they were called. The, the kind of the, the euphemism for the Roman army was they are the short swords. But those short swords were effective. They were effective in taking land and driving back the enemy. And unlike one of those large knight swords that would be swung, right? You just see that, that kind of that flailing blade like slashing through the air. This sword was more of a thrusting sword. It was a jabbing sword. And so the the soldier, if you remember, we had that, that shield that's like four feet tall, and that, that soldier would be behind that shield and, and advancing on the enemy and would reach around that shield and just do kind of more of this jabbing kind of action. And because of the weight of the sword, they were able to do that very effectively, either cutting right through that, that shield or around the shield or cutting at the ankles of the enemy and immobilizing them that way. They were highly effective. Here's what we know about the gladius, is that the Roman soldier never went anywhere. They never went anywhere without their sword. They might have taken other parts of the armor off 
uh, whether in camp or right, if they if they were in a place that maybe there was no imminent threat. But the thing that always went with them with, was their their sword. By the way, if their sword went with them, the belt of truth was always with them as well. That truth never left them. That that belt never left them because it was where the sword was attached to. They also carried a short dagger. I don't have a picture of it, but you always see like the depictions of the Roman soldiers. They had their 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 longer sword, the gladius, and then they also had a short uh, dagger that they carried with them as well for close combat and even for some utilitarian type uses. So this is the sword that Paul is talking about when he's referencing the sword within the armor. This is what he would have been painting a picture of and his audience would have been well aware of what it was. In the same way, I just gave you some characteristics of the gladius. I want to give you some characteristics of the sword of the spirit. In the same way that this sword has some unique attributes, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, has some unique features that are tailor-made for us as believers. And so I'm going to list them out. If you want to take notes on these, you're welcome to. Um, I'll have scripture, scripture references. You can't preach a message about the Word of God without using the Word of God. And so uh, there's going to be lots of verses, lots of references this morning. So first is this. We have to know this, know this that the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is from God. It's implied in the name, but I think sometimes we forget. That the word of God is from God. In fact, you, didn't, you might not have realized it, but we've been singing about that this morning. John 1, 1 through 2 says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We literally sang those words in worship this morning. The word here is not talking about a Bible like this. He's not talking about a printed document. You'll notice it's a capital W because it's a reference here. John is referencing the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word. He is the word. He is the one who gives us life. He is the one who gives us truth. When standing before Pilate, and being accused and being questioned in that context. Pilate says, so you're a king. And Jesus says, well, you called me a king. And then Jesus goes on to say this. It's for this reason that I came, for this reason I was born. To testify to the truth. Jesus was and is the word of God. And he was present at creation. He was there in the beginning and not only that. He wasn't just with God, he was and is God to this day. This is absolutely foundational for us, church. It's absolutely foundational because if we don't know and don't believe and don't stand on the fact that the word of God is from God, well, we're dead in the water. We have, we have nothing to stand on. This is so key for us to get. If there is any sense or any question that the entire word of God is true, is accurate, is without fault, we're in trouble. And so we have to start there. Now, i got to say this. There's going to be a lot of things I say this morning that I'm going to glance on subjects 
and just gl- kind of glance off and take a second to speak about subjects that are infinitely deeper than the time that we give them this morning. And just for the sake of time, there's things that I can't delve into, and, uh, and, and there are places where we can get more answers. If you have more questions, please let me know, and I'd love to have a conversation with you. But, but we have to know this, that the Word of God is absolutely the Word of God. It is from Him. It, is, it flows from who He is, His identity, and it is for us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 says this, All Scripture, all means all, every bit of it. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. We're going to come back to this verse in a minute, so I'm not going to read the rest of it. All Scripture is God-breathed. What does that mean? That it flows from Him. It is life that flows from Him to us. By the way, you know what else is God-breathed? We are. The Bible says that God fashioned us in the, in, in, from the, the dirt and the clay, and He molded us, and then He breathed His life into us. All Scripture is God-breathed. It flows from Him. Its life finds its origin in who He is. Why is this important? Because it doesn't flow from us. There are those who would say, well, the Bible is just made up by people. Just men, men throughout the ages and women throughout the ages, just, they just kind of came up, they kind of got these random ideas and put them together. Uh, when I was in Israel a, f- a few months ago, I got to go uh, to the museum where they have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's amazing to see these delicate scrolls found in the, the, the caves in Qumran that, are, are, that, that go way back, centuries back, that confirm and reaffirm the validity of Scripture. That there are texts dating back thousands of years that tell us that Scripture is accurate. There are too many coincidences for it to be a coincidence. It can't not be the, the Word of God and be authoritative because we have way too much evidence that says otherwise. So this is not just someone's idea. Someone sat down and said, hey, we're going to write a document that's going to fool people into believing that there's some God. There's no way. It's not possible. It's not reasonable. And so this is absolutely the Word of God from God for us. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says this, Peter writing to the church, he says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretations of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by who? By the Holy Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. These are not men's ideas. These are God's ideas. And He communicated them to us through willing vessels, but under the power of the Holy Spirit. We have in the Word of God, in the Bible as we have it today, one of the greatest gifts ever given. That God would write down, that He would cause people throughout millennia to write down His thoughts towards us, to record them, And for us to be able to open this book and read those thoughts and hear his thoughts towards us is such a great blessing. See, it's not our word, it's his word. It's his word. And can I tell you, his word in your mouth is effective. It is powerful. 
Second thing is this. God's word, the sword of the spirit is eternal. It is eternal. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says these words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Everything you see around you is one day it's going to be gone. It's not going to exist anymore here in heaven, here on earth and in heaven. But the thing that will never pass away is his word. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his nature. He doesn't change his character. He doesn't change his word. A few months ago, we had a sermon series uh, entitled Unstuck. And I was talking about the power of the word of God. I want to touch on something for just a minute this morning um, that we spoke about back then. If you, again, if you want to look that up on the podcast, you can. It's, the series was called Unstuck. See, we live in a temporal t- space. We live here on earth. We have bodies that are fading, right? We live in a world that is broken, and, and we live within the context of time. You're born on a certain day. You live your life celebrating that day every year, and then at some point, you pass. You die. Everyone will die. By the way, the Bible says that, that we, we all die. And our time that is lived in this temporal span has a beginning and an end. See, God is eternal. He lives outside of space and time. He's not confined to what we understand is time. And I talked about two Greek words that I want to touch on for a minute. The one word is kairos and the other is chronos. We live within chronos. We live within linear time. God exists in kairos time. That God moves when he says that he knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. When Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. What he's speaking about is not chronos, he's talking about kairos. That God can see the beginning and the end and he can see every detail of our lives as they're laid out in front of him. That is kairos. And we exist as believers in both chronos and kairos time. We live in both spaces at the same time. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because he's invited us into a place where we're not just a part of the kingdom of this world, but we're also living under the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, your will be, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we're asking that your kingdom would be established here on earth. So Kronos is that chronological time. It's linear. Kairos, though, is a divine moment. And that as we encounter the power of God, especially through his word, we discover that Kairos will speak to us in the midst of Kronos if we're paying attention. See, God's word is eternal, which means that I'm going to read something on a particular day. Now listen, listen to this carefully. God cannot have not known that you would read something on a day at a particular time. Which means that, let's say tomorrow you open your Bible and you read a passage of Scripture. God knew from the foundations of the earth that, he would, that you would read that Scripture in that moment. And He will cause, as we will read in a minute, He causes that Scripture and that passage to come alive. In that moment, in that Kairos moment. We also talked about Logos and Rhema. Logos and rhema are the two words that are interpreted word. 
in the scriptures. The logos, and it's the reference when, Paul, when, and when John writes about in the beginning was the word, he's talking about the logos. It's the substance of the word. Jesus is the logos. He is the logos. He is the truth. We have contained in, in, in the pages of scripture the logos. We have the written word, at least in part. We have the revelation from God's heart to us. But there's also a rhema, so along with Kairos and Kronos, we have the rhema and the logos. We will read the logos and encounter the logos, but we will have a rhema, which is a revealed word from God, and it is the Holy Spirit, which is why the sword is the sword of the Spirit, not the sword of Jesus. Because the sword of the Spirit will bring about a rhema, a specific word in a specific time, that will meet us where we are, that will speak life that will speak blessing, that will bring correction, that will do the work that it needs to do. Hebrews 13, chapter 13, verse 8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You'll notice that verse is printed at the top of the bulletin this morning. If we were in our own building somewhere, if we had a church building that belonged to us, that verse would be up on the wall. Because as a four-square church, as a four-square family of churches and a denomination, one of the things that we recognize is that the eternal nature of God is central to who we are as a people of God. That it's not about us, that it's all about Him, and that serves, us, serves as a reminder to us that we have to not get in the way, that we get to partner. Do you understand that sometimes we get in the way? My thinking gets in the way. My attitudes get in the way. My desires get in the way. And as well-intentioned as they seem, if they're not submitted to the person and the authority of Jesus Christ, I get myself in trouble. And so that serves us as a reminder that God's word is eternal, that Jesus is eternal, that he will never change, and that he will always be the same. Third thing, third thing is this. God's word is accessible it's accessible to us. See, if, it's God, if the word of God is God-breathed, it's from God and it's eternal, immediately it puts it in a plane that for us it seems like it's kind of wholly other. Well, if it's so awesome and so amazing, how can I encounter it? See, God has thought of this. He's made a way and he has made his word accessible. In Psalm 119, the psalmist writes this in verse 9, how can a young person, if you're a young person, just raise your hand. Everyone raise your hand. You're all young. How can a young person, all of us, stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word. Where? In my heart. That I might not sin against you. That God has made his word accessible to us so that we don't have to just read it, that we can retain it, not just in the knowledge sense. I love that he doesn't say, I've read your word and I've memorized it and committed it to my brain. No, I've hidden your word in my heart. Why? Because the scripture says that our life flows from our heart, that our words flow from our heart. Right, Our passions, our desires, the things that drive us, our will is contained in our heart. So God, I'm going to hide your word in my heart because it's going to correct 
and train and discipline and reveal and show who you are and who you're calling me to be. The word is accessible. Jesus in writing, in speaking rather to the apostles and the disciples says this in John 14, 26. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. I'm going to give you a helper. Do you know that Jesus said a lot? Right? He said a lot. In fact, Scripture says that the Bible as we have it is not comprehensive. It doesn't record everything that Jesus said. He said if, if they were to write down everything he said, there would not be enough books. And so he says to the disciples who heard most of what he said because they were with him, he says, listen, don't be overwhelmed. Don't be overwhelmed. Have you ever come to the Word, coming, come to by reading the Bible and felt a little overwhelmed? Anyone? I have, definitely. Lord, there's so much here. Lord, how I can't wrap my head around this. Lord, I just keep reading and I, I don't understand this. I don't see. I, this is incredible. God says, I will give you the Holy Spirit and he will remind you of everything I've taught. He will make it accessible. He will pave a way and, and open a way so that the truth of God's word would be in a place where we can lay a hold of it, grab a hold of it, and apply it in our lives. I've shared this story before. I don't think I can preach on this subject without referencing this story. So forgive me if you've heard it before. But years ago, uh, I, when I was first a youth pastor, I shared an office at the church we were on staff at with a man named Dr. Clarence Hall. He was one of the great men of faith in our movement and was uh, a professor, a pastor, a missionary, and a great, great man of, uh, of faith and, 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 and service in the kingdom of God. At that time, I was about 24 years old, and he was 93. We were sitting on a Saturday morning in the off talking, and I love just sweetest, sweetest man. And I love just speaking with him, and he said to me one day, he says, you know, Barry, I, uh, I taught the book of Ephesians uh, for 40 years at Life Bible College. That was, this was his, and so it's appropriate as well. For 40 years, I taught the book of Ephesians. He says, and for 45 years, I've read the book of Ephesians every single day at least once. I, my, in my mind, as you're doing right now, I'm trying to do the math. And I'm thinking, you probably don't have to read it. You could probably recite it backwards in the Greek. <laughs> and then he said something that changed my view and my approach of Scripture to this day. And he said, you know, and every time I read it, I learn something new. That the word of God is accessible to us in such a way that we never get done with it. Right? I have a novel that I've read and I was like, yeah, I read that. I don't want to, watch, I don't want to read that again. I already read that. I know what happens. That the Bible is not that way. That here's this man who approaches Scripture with such humility that after 45 years, every time he opens the pages of the book and reads these words, that God says, I've made this word accessible to you so that you can get a greater glimpse of who I am, my love for you. 
That statement wrecked me, but it also reminds me that the word of God is accessible to me and to you, that we're never done with it. God always says, I want to show more of who I am. And so God's word is accessible. And then finally this morning, God's word is effective. It is effective. You know, I think sometimes we start here. We're like, hey, I just want to grab the Bible and I just want to get some verses under my belt, and right? And I just want to start using them. And it is effective, but we've got to know why it's effective and where it's coming from. It is indeed effective. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active. Okay, let me stop there for a second. This is just a book. It's got kind of a fake leather on it. Maybe it is a real leather, I don't know. No, genuine leather. Look at that. Pages with ink. There are people who revere this book, right? They carry it around some of the churches in Jerusalem. You go and watch, and, and right, there's, it's the sacred text, and they worship the book. It's a book. It will fade. It will burn. It'll wear out. I have another one where the cover's all coming off, and every time I open it, like, bits of pieces of it are falling out. It's just a book, this is not alive and active, right? This is just, this is logos. This exists within this chronos time. What's alive and active is the rhema. It's the kairos. It's the Holy Spirit. And so he says the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit Joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So it's alive and active. It's not passive. It's not, it's not ineffective. It's very effective. But, but you notice that the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews doesn't say this. The, the word of God is alive and active, and it's useful for you to take it and chop other people up. To address the issues in their life. Come on. It starts internally. Who knows your thoughts and attitudes? Jesus does. Who else? You do. You do. You can fake it, right? My wife, my wife can read me better than anyone else, but it's still not a perfect read because I know what my attitude is. When we get into an, an argument or a, a discussion, And she's like, where's this coming from? Why, why do you have, what, what's, what's happening? Why is there this tension? I don't know. <laughs> but I do know. I just don't want to say. Because it's going to reveal what's going on inside of me, and it's not pretty, and it's not good. And I'm talking about myself, but you can apply it to yourself as well, right? Right? It's alive and active. It says that it penetrates dividing soul and spirit. Joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That when we allow ourselves and we submit ourselves to the word of God, what God says is this will be effective in your own life in calling you out. That's great. I'll just put that right there then. And hopefully, like, just kind of its presence in the room will have some kind of magical effect in my home. But I don't actually want to read it then. Not effective. Not effective because it's just a book. 
Having a bigger Bible in your house doesn't make you more spiritual. It just doesn't. And it doesn't matter what version, doesn't matter what, what translation, right? There's all kinds of de- debates. Which is the best translation? doesn't matter. If it's the Word of God, it's alive and active, and He will bring it to life. Because those are just the ideas, the translation of men. It's their thoughts. Well, I think this word means that, and that means, you know what? Listen to God. And so we open it, and we allow Him to, to fillet us. Can we get real for a second? He's like, hey, I'm not just going to gently tuck, touch some old areas and just kind of be like, hey, you need to kind of think about this. No, it says it's a double-edged sword, and he is going to take you apart lovingly. <laughs> and we need it. It's effective in addressing who we are and who we need to be and getting rid of the stuff in our lives. If you were diagnosed with cancer and you went in for surgery and you went under the knife, you would not tell the surgeon, hey, can you just kind of cut around it? You'd be like, hack that sucker out and take a little bit extra just to make sure. Am I right? Why would we, do, why would we not do that with the word of God in addressing the sinful places in our lives? God, hack it out. Holy Spirit, bring your word to bear in my life. Judge the thoughts and attitudes of my heart and open me wide up. Yeah, I'm vulnerable, but Jesus, I need you. So the word of God is first effective in our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, all scripture is God breathed. We talked about that already. And then Paul goes on to say this, and is useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He broadens the scope a little bit here. So yes, it's an internal process of effectiveness in our own lives. But then he says, I'm going to reach out and we're going to allow the word of God to be effective in, 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 in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. First of all, with us. Again, we don't get a free pass here. This is not like the, the opportunity now where we get to say, well, now it's for other people. No, 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 it's still you. But we can also now use the word of God to equip his people. In fact, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that my job and the jobs of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the teachers, along with the pastors, is to equip the people of God, the saints, that's you, for the work of the ministry. In here, here in Timothy, he says, equipped for every good work. That's you. And by the way, this is exactly what's happening right now. I love when people say, oh, oh, so you give speeches. No. I speak up front. I stand in front of people. And I, and I speak. And it's what God has called me to. And I know for most people, the fear of doing this is absolutely crippling. And so he chooses some to say, hey, this, this is what you're going to be. This is what you're going to do. But not everyone, because he has an, an assignment for each of us that's unique. But he's saying, is in this context that the word of God would be the thing that teaches us. By the way, you've noticed, if you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, I use a lot of scripture in my preaching. A lot of scripture in my preaching. Why? Because I want you to leave here not going, well, Pastor Barry had some great ideas. 
I want you to walk out of here going, I've never thought about that passage of Scripture in that way before. And I want you to be focused on the Scripture, not on my funny stories, or what I at least think are funny. Um, Does that make sense? And I would say in, in your life and in your experience, beware of pastors and preachers and ministries that will take one verse and build an entire theology around it. Because scripture is balanced. You can add that as point five. We're not going to talk about it, But it is balanced. And it corrects and it, it, it balances itself. It's effective for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. The question here is, am I willing? Am I open to being taught? Am I open to being rebuked? I might like being taught, but I don't like being rebuked, right? No one's going to be like, hey, bring on the rebuke. Rebuke me, please. No, but we need it. The problem is so often it's not done in love, and Scripture can never be done outside of the context of love because it says that Jesus is the Word, but God is also love, and He can't contradict Himself. And so whatever rebuking He brings, He brings in a way of love or discipline, correcting. Man, I need to be corrected. There's times where I am walking the wrong way. And God needs to tell me, Barry, you're headed the wrong direction. You're making bad decisions. You're thinking about that in a way that's not in line with the way I think about it. You're judging that person. You're looking at that person and you're jumping to a conclusion about what their motives are. And I need to correct you because you're off base and you're letting your flesh step in And your mind take control and you're not submitting and surrendering yourself to my word. It's always a good idea to stop and say, God, what do you think about this? God, I'm facing opposition with this person and honestly, they're just bugging me right now. God, what do you say? What do you see? What is going on in their lives? And the rhema word of God, the Holy Spirit will give you revelation to say, hey, you know what? They're going through something difficult right now. And that's not true to the character of who they are, the personality and their design. Have some grace. It's one of our values as a church, grace extended. Why? Because I'm always wanting to believe the best about who you are because my own judgments fall short. I need to be corrected by the word of God and for training in righteousness. I want to close with this final story. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 says this, this is right after Jesus has been baptized in water and then baptized in the Spirit. It says that, in starting in verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You're like, yeah, I am like that right now. <laughs> and maybe on Tuesday, you're like, I, actually, help me. I'm like, right, by, by mid-afternoon on Tuesday, I'm like, I'm hungry. And then Jesus is like, I afforded fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm good. I'm good. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw down Uh, Throw yourself down. Now listen to this. This is a part of the tactic of the enemy. Satan says this. For it is written. 
He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. I want you to notice something really important here. That Satan comes and opposes and attacks Jesus' humanity. He attacks his hunger because that was the first thing he was feeling. 40 days, 40 nights, he's hungry. Jesus was fully human and he had human cravings in, in regards to food, in, in, in regards to everything actually, but he just never gave in to them, never gave in to the temptation. Satan will always tempt you at the point of your appetite. He will always come against you in the place that you're most vulnerable. He's not going to come against you in the things that you're strong in because it's foolishness. He comes against you against your flesh, against the weak places in your life. And he says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, he calls into question the truth claims of, who, uh, of God. Jesus literally just came out of the water 40 days ago, and here's this voice from heaven. This is my, it's my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The very first point of temptation is, if you are the Son of God. And he will call into question the truth claims of what God says. Jesus' response is not this. Very important for us. Do you know who I am? And this is Jesus. Yes, Satan knew who he was. Right? He absolutely knew who he was dealing with. So, so Jesus, instead of responding out of his flesh says, it is written. He doesn't respond in the flesh, he responds in the spirit, which again, he had just been baptized, and when he came out of the water, was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and was empowered for the work that God had him to do. Now, now did Jesus have to do that? Probably not. So why did he do it? So that we could pattern our lives after him and say, listen, if Jesus did it, it's important for us to do. Would you agree that's an important way to live your life? If it was good enough for Jesus, it's probably critically essential in my life. He responds in the spirit. It is written. And he rebuffs and, and, and repulses and pushes back and attacks the enemy Picture this, there's the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and the blows are coming from the enemy and you're stepping in. Not with your own ideas, not with your own strength, but the word of God. Why is it so critical that the word of God is in you? Because if you don't know it, how are you going to respond? Because even as we see in the scripture here, Jesus says it is written and then Satan's like, okay, I'll get you on this. He says, then throw yourself down, because it is written. If you don't know the word of God, the enemy will use the word of God against you. 
He will use it against you because he knows the Bible as well. And he will work to, to throw you into confusion. And so you need to know the word of God. You need to be equipped with a sword so that you can defend yourself against those blows with the shield of faith and then immediately step in and say, that is not who I am. The Bible says that I am God's creation, created in him to do good works. Well, you're a loser. You're sinful. <laughs> you're right, but you know, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. By the way, don't worry about the chapters and verses. What I'm not saying is when the enemy attacks you, you'll go, I mean, it doesn't hurt, but don't get hung up on like, I don't remember the chapter and the verse. It's okay. Neither do I most of the time. But I know what the word says. The Bible says I'm above, not below, that I'm a head, not the tail, right? He says that I am clothed in righteousness, that God has cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. This is what the Bible says. It's not my idea. I get to hang on to that because that's what he says about me in his word. And the enemy knows it and he cannot stand his ground. So let me ask you this question as we close this morning. What comes out of your mouth? What comes out of your mouth when trials come? Oh, I can't believe I'm going through this again. My life, I'm just, I'm just destined to a life of struggling. That is not a blessing. That is a curse that you're declaring over your life. What comes out of your mouth when temptation rears its head? Oh, I guess I'm just going to struggle with this for the rest of my life. No. What, ha what comes out of your mouth when people hurt you? When they disappoint you, when they frustrate you, when they rub you the wrong way, when they look at you, come on, let's get real. I can't believe they that way they looked at me. What was that all about? Right? What comes out of your mouth? What comes out of your mouth to other people about brothers and sisters in Christ? What comes out of your mouth when things seem out of control? What comes out of your mouth when you're hurting? What comes out of your mouth when things are good, do you still need Jesus when things are easy and you're walking in blessing? You better believe you do. What comes out of your mouth? Because what comes out of your mouth determines what kind of sword you're carrying. Are you, do you have one of these? Or do you have one of those? If I'm facing an enemy, if I'm in a dark alley, and some dude shows up, right? Hey, wait. <laughs> Remember, it's, that, that wasn't a massive sword, but that's way more effective than this. I keep thinking of Crocodile Dundee. Anyone else? That's not a knife. That's a knife. See, here's the reality, church, is so many believers live their lives in relation to the word like this and think that they're doing okay. Oh, I got a blade. Yeah, it's effective in some instances. But Paul didn't say, hey, be equipped with a Swiss army knife. 
Be equipped with the sword of the Spirit. Can we stand together? As the worship team comes, let me close. I've said that like three times now. You're like, I don't believe you anymore. (laughs) What comes out of your mouth reveals what's in your heart. The Bible says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So in each of those situations and so many more, if what comes out of your mouth is despondency and despair, if it's vindictive or judgmental, it means that what's in your heart is not of the Lord. The psalmist said, Lord, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God, I want to hide my word in the place of my life that when I'm pressed, that what comes out of me is your word. That the declarations of our mouths are powerful. Paul says that we fight. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are spiritual. Your words are spiritual, church. Your words, when they are the word of God, they are doing battle in the heavenly realms. Why do we fast and pray? Why, by the way, 9.30 a.m. here on Sundays, join us for prayer. Why? Because the words we speak in prayer are powerful in destroying and pushing back the enemy. Let's take God at his word. Father, this morning I'm thankful for your word. Your word that is God-breathed. Your word that is eternal. Your word that is accessible. And your word that is effective in our lives. God, we thank you that you've equipped us with everything we need to live godly lives. But I ask as a body of believers, as a church, as your bride, that we would pick up the pieces of armor and that we would be fully equipped to stand and then to drive back the forces of evil in this world to see your kingdom established here on earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our, worship, our prayer team is available for you in the back if you want to pray with someone. Let's worship together as we end this morning.